Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is our biggest fixed cost of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and cost of your policy? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. I recently reviewed my policy and discovered Tigo. Tigo's policy came in significantly cheaper than my current provider and new clients get an extra two months free in their first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo's medical legal support and advisory is available 24-7 and they are backed by Berkshire Hathaway Specialty Insurance. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Did you know, in 2019, ASX 200 companies paid out almost $60 billion in dividends to shareholders. In this episode, we will explain dividends, franking credits, and ways shareholders can reinvest those dividends most cost-effectively. Hey, this is Andrew and the Medical Money Podcast, where we share tips to help doctors earn, grow, and protect their money. Please hit subscribe and share the love with your colleagues. If you have a topic you'd like discussed or feedback to share, send an email to andrew at medicalmoney.com. In this episode, let's take a deep dive into the world of shared dividends. We will explain dividends, franking credits, and reinvestment programs, including DRPs and bonus share plans. Today's guest is Connell Keneary from What If Advice. Connell is a financial advisor who helps clients invest for their future, reduce financial stress, and take control of their money. We've divided this episode into four parts. First, we explain what dividends are and the concept of dividend yield. Then we'll discuss tax on dividends, including franking credits and foreign tax withholding. Thirdly, we'll cover dividend reinvestment plans, bonus share plans, and DSSPs. And finally, we will answer some of the listener questions. To aid your understanding, we have created a PDF with worked examples so you can follow as you listen. Go to medicalmoney.com slash episode 17 and download the examples. We covered the four tax zones and cost-based calculations in episode 15, and I recommend you listen to that first if you haven't already, because this episode will build on some of those concepts. This podcast is not financial advice, and all opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own. Please seek professional advice before making any financial or investment decision. Connell, thanks for sharing your time with us again today. How are you? I'm very, very good. Thanks for having me back. Oh, very, very welcome. You did a great episode last time, so let's uh, let's do another one. Um, in this episode, we're going to enter your brain again and talk about shares and dividends. For many investors, shares are just a squiggly line on a chart. But can you please explain to us what a share actually is? Yeah, so a share is when you have part ownership of a company, uh, which then entitles you to uh, parts of the profit. And so the squiggly lines that we see on charts is really the share price, and that's largely determined by sentiment. Uh, the Whereas as a shareholder, you're really saying, this company, I think it's going to make a profit, and I want to share in the growth of this company's profits, and also you know maybe take a ride on the share price as well. So what are dividends? Yeah, so you buy shares in a company because you believe they're going to make a profit and go up in value over time, sure. But when a company makes a profit, they've got a couple of options of what they can do with that money. Maybe they reinvest it in the business, maybe they buy another business, but one of those things they sometimes do is distribute those profits to shareholders and that's called a dividend. 
the percentage that they choose to distribute is the um, the dividend payout ratio, isn't it? Where uh, that is the percentage that is taken from the profits that is going to shareholders. That's it. I've heard some companies even borrow money to pay dividends. Why might they choose to do this? Yeah, look, there's a number of reasons why they may do it. And it's obviously for strategic reasons. And it ultimately boils down to the they believe that the cost of the interest that they'll spend the money on is less than the alternative. Um, like I was saying before, maybe they're planning on buying another company, so they need the cash. Um, maybe their cash flow is cyclical and they don't have enough cash in the bank. But if they then went and cancelled or delayed a dividend, that would then affect sentiment, which they might, then might bring the share price down. So effectively, strategic reasons. So not necessarily a good balance sheet reason, though, is it? Not, not um, always, but sometimes it can be seen as a good thing, um, in depending yeah. on how you look at it. So it depends on it, it depends on the why, and sometimes we don't always know the real why. Yeah, that's true. And so what do investors need to do to qualify to receive a dividend? And can you explain the difference between the record date, ex-dividend date, and the payment date? Yeah, great question. So, you know, companies have a share register. So firstly, you have your record date and it's sort of saying, hey, when have you got onto that register and you've recorded? Yep, you know, Mr. Smith owns these shares. So that's pretty straightforward. The ex-dividend date is like the cutoff date. So you need to be on the register before that date. And the company then opens their books on the, on the day after that date to say, hey, who is on our registers? And that's who we're going to pay a dividend to. And then the payment date is the actual date that they pay out those dividends. Yeah. And so when are dividends paid and how do investors receive those dividends? So it depends on the company. Um, the most common would be you know, twice a year. And they sometimes call it an interim and a final uh, dividend. Uh, some companies pay quarterly, some don't pay dividends at all. I've even seen some that pay out monthly. Um, and they, how do they get paid? Generally, it's into the set, into like a nominated bank account, and it's often the same account used that you use to purchase those stocks. So it might be like your cash holding account. Yeah, and so you usually have to list your once you've bought the shares, you have to uh, go to the share registry, whether that's computer share or link share, and then say the account that you want to pay those uh, those funds in, isn't it? Yeah, it, it depends on how you've bought those shares. Some like stockbroking accounts will automatically update that for you with your bank account. And it's important to to know that not all shares pay dividends. I saw in a post the other day where someone wrote, so when shall I be expecting my afterpay dividends? <laughs> yeah. Um, and there's a great Warren Buffett quote where he was, you know, quizzed by investors saying, hey, you know, Warren, when are you going to pay out dividends? And his response was, yeah. you're welcome to take a dividend anytime you want, just sell some shares. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's the reason why he's been able to to maximize the returns for, for Berkshire so nicely. And so exchange-traded funds and listed investment companies have become very popular in the past decade. How do they pay dividends to unit holders and shareholders? Yeah, so short version is they pay dividends and franking credits you know, the same way those companies do, and it's correlated to their underlying holdings. So let's say a person has a $10,000 Australian ETF, and then an investor number two had the exact same um, holdings, but they went and bought the direct shares instead. So they went and bought 15% of CSL, they went and bought 5% Woolworth shares and so on. Theoretically, both of those investors would have a very similar dividend and franking credits paid out to them. I will add a couple of, you know, variables. One is those dates we've just talked about. So, you know, what dates were things bought and when. The other thing is ETFs and some of these companies have underlying, you know, costs to run them. So that sometimes gets taken out prior. So there are some small differences, but generally speaking, it's the same as the underlying holding. So can you explain to me what is meant by dividend yield and how the recent fall in share prices affects this number? 
Yeah, okay. So dividend yield is describing the amount of dividend that's paid out, but it's expressed as a percentage um, of the share value. So the formula is just annual dividend divided by share price. So I don't know, let's see an example. You've got a share that's worth $100 and it's paying a $10 dividend. Will you have a 10% dividend yield? So fast forward six months later and whether the shares go up or down, it can affect this dividend yield. Let's say the shares go up and your shares go to $150 uh, and the share dividend goes to $12. In this case, your dividend yield would go down to potentially 8%. Now you were talking about the current share market. If the opposite happens, well, well it's in, in, inverted. So your hundred dollar share goes down to eighty. Um, perhaps your dividend yield goes up because of the drop in share market value. Yeah, I mean, just in the little forums, a lot of people are saying, "Oh, the dividend yield on um, certain um, ETFs is massive," but they haven't. Had, that's using the trailing dividend payment rather than the one that's coming up. And we might be seeing dividends uh, going down significantly and affecting that yield significantly as well over the next uh, 12 months, I would expect. Yeah, I th the, the dividend yield isn't like the best, um, you know, performance metric, you know, and the other part to it is like everyone needs to see it in their own, for their own particular trades. You know, you take someone who bought Commonwealth Bank, you know, 20 years ago, their dividend yield is very, very different to what the dividend yield is today because their cost base is, you know, half the price. Yeah, like you mentioned, it's really about today's dividend payment divided by today's um, share price. Uh, and, and it depends in, on your goal. Like, are you looking for yield? Are you not looking for yield? Like, what's, what are your, what's your goal? Maybe the dollar value is more important to you than the percentage. Yeah, and in episode 11 with Peter Thornhill, he, he raised the topic of the yield fallacy, which is where, like you said, the cost base of Commonwealth Bank shares in the last GFC, in the GFC might have been $20, whereas, and your yield now might be significantly higher than the 4 or 5%, and it could be really be 20 to 30% based on what your cost base was, um, was back then. Yeah. Excellent. Um, let's move on to dividends and tax. In Australia, we have a very interesting tax situation with the existence of franking credits. We're one of the few countries to have this. Can you explain what are franking credits and why they were implemented? Yeah, so franking credits are used so we don't pay tax twice on the same money. So, you know, in an example where a company makes $1,000 profit, you know, and we learned that they then pay 30% tax on that. So they've got $700 sitting in the bank account uh, and then they go to pay out um, dividends to shareholders. Now, should that shareholder then pay further tax on that $700, because then effectively the government's taxing that initial $1,000 twice. So instead, the solution was coming up with a credit that the company passed on to the shareholder that just says, hey, we've already paid tax on this for you. Here's a franking credit. And so we don't have the double tax paid at the, the marginal tax rate for uh, individuals or a company tax rate yeah, uh, as well. Yep. And so what is meant by the term fully franked and why don't all companies pay fully franked dividends? Yeah, so fully franked means you get 100% of the credit. So like we're saying, it was a 30% credit, you would get 100% of the 30%. Um, unfranked means that you don't get any credit. Uh, and then you also have partially franked. Why don't all companies have fully franked dividends? Well, one, it's their choice to, you know, they can distribute it how they see fit. The other part to it is sometimes companies don't always pay 30% tax. So, you know, maybe there was a depreciation schedule, maybe there was a property sold and their profits don't require 100% tax. And if they're not paying tax on it, they then can't pass the dividend on, you know, that saying, hey, we've paid tax on it when they haven't. So that's some of the reasons why you may get a partially franked. 
What is the result of thanking credits to people who pay tax and those who don't pay tax because they're on, say, the pension? Yeah, so hotly contested in the last election. Um, when you get a franking credit, it is what it sounds like. It's a credit. So if you aren't paying any tax, you will potentially get a refund, like a tax refund in your tax return that year. Um, if you're a high income earner earning more than, say, that 30% credit, you may need to pay a little bit of tax on that franking credit. I think there was calculated that uh, if the, I think Labor government got in, they would lose about $5 billion. So they're losing about $5 billion in, um, in franking credits that are paid to uh, people who don't pay tax, you know, retirees largely. So it's a massive amount of money that would have been, would have been saving. Uh, for investors, what are the requirements for obtaining franking credits? Yeah, so the big one is the 45-day holding rule. So you need to, you know, be at financial risk for 45 days or more to be eligible to get that um, franking credit. So you could buy it a couple of days before the ex-dividend, um, you know, date uh, and sell it a couple of days after and you would qualify. Yeah, a couple of days after the 45-day holding period, right? Yeah. Yep, excellent. And so we've explained the dividends, we've explained the franking credits. What does it mean by grossed up return? Yeah, so this is probably one of the parts where it's potentially easier if you look at the examples that we've you know set out. Um, let's go back to an example where a company makes a hundred dollars profit. Um, they pay thirty dollars in um, you know tax, and they pay seventy dollars to the investor. So the grossed up amount of the seventy dollars, you add that thirty dollars back in, which means it was actually a hundred dollar um, dividend grossed up. Yeah, so listeners can can look at slide number one in the PDF that we've got available as well. So can you just walk us through an example of how the fully frank dividend of the $100 would be taxed, taking into account some of the different tax zones that we discussed in a previous episode? Yeah, okay. So let's say you get your dividend paid and it's $70. What goes on your tax return is the combination of the both. So it's the $70 dividend plus the $30 um, franking credit. So let's say you've got a total taxable income of $100. Now, the, you then work out what tax would you have paid if that's what the income you got. So if you're in a 15% tax zone, well, it's $15. If you're in a you know 30% tax zone, it's $30. So you, that's your, you know, the tax you have to pay. Once that's calculated, then they add back the franking credit. So in our first case where you have paid $15, but your franking credit was $30, that's when you get that extra $15 refunded. Um, conversely, if you're on a 30%, you would, you know, it would even out. Um, or if you're a specialist and you're on 45, um, you know, percent plus, uh, that's where you have to pay that extra $15. I just want to give a quick plug to my favorite portfolio tracker, ShareSite. ShareSite keeps track of all my share purchases, calculates dividends, franking credits, and foreign tax withholding. It even stores all the confirmation notes for easy reference in the future. You can manage 10 holdings for free or get a two-month bonus if you upgrade to a paid subscription. Visit medicalmoney.com ShareSite. That's S-H-A-R-E-S-I-G-H-T. Now back to the episode. Let's talk about dividend on foreign shares. Some countries have tax withholding for foreign investors. I've got shares in the US and also in, in Europe on their stock exchanges, and they do withhold varying amounts of tax. How does the ATO deal with this, and how do we need to deal with it on our tax returns? Yeah, so you know, generally speaking, you know, you pass it to your accountant, and you get him to do it for you or them to do it for you. Um, but think of it like a franking credit. So you, we've paid some tax in another country called America. 
um, and that then goes onto your tax return, much like a franking credit would, and it's applied back as a franking credit. Um, I would add one small thing is that you can only use those offsets up to the value of $1,000, um, where it's you know a dollar for dollar. Um, after that, there's an extra calculation that has to be done to make sure you aren't claiming too much. And that's called the uh, the offset limit, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to that in the show notes because it is quite complicated. And so let's move on to dividend reinvestment plans and bonus share plans, which are commonly called DSSPs. Mm-hmm. What, is a, what is a dividend reinvestment plan and why are they useful to investors? Um, okay, so take a scenario where you own CSL shares and you get paid a dividend, you know, and your plan is you just want more CSL shares. So you get paid a dividend and then you go and buy more of those, you know, those shares. You know, when you do that, you've, you know, there's, there's tax implications, there's extra brokerage when you make that extra um, trade. Uh, there's also the risk that you don't buy extra shares and you spend that dividend on something else. A dividend reinvestment program effectively does that action for you. It gets your dividend and instead of paying you the dividends, they just pay you in shares effectively. Yeah. And so how do investors opt into dividend reinvestment programs? Um, yeah, it's with the share registry with the company is the, the, the best way to do it, just do it directly. Yep. And so you can choose, can't you, whether you want to have part of the dividends reinvested or the whole lot reinvested uh, each time the dividends come out. Yeah, you can opt in and you can opt out and you can opt in partially and opt out partially. Yeah. And because a lot of people then, as they move into retirement with it or their tax bracket falls down, opt to then take the dividend as a payment so that they've got money to spend in retirement and just withdraw from that dividend reinvestment program, don't they? Yeah, that's right. And that's like that yield strategy. When you move into retirement or when you need extra income or you decide to take, I don't know, five years off work and you want income from somewhere else, these are the different um, you know taps you can turn on to increase your you know household income. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it as a little tap or a switch, isn't it, that you can... can Flick, depending on your circumstances. Yeah, that's it. Yep. I'll get you to walk us through an example of how a DRP works. I recommend listeners to take a look at slide two for this one. How is the cost base calculated for DRP shares and, and what are the tax implications? Yeah. So let's say you had a share that had a dollar value and you had $10,000 of those. So you have 10,000 shares. And as a company would usually pay out a two cent per share dividend. So an, an, an investor who wasn't in a DRP, well, what they would receive is a $200 um, you know, dividend. If you're in the DRP, well, instead what you're getting is a $200, ex- sorry, 200 extra shares. So at the end of it, you would, instead of having $10,000 of the shares and $200 in your bank account, you would then have you know, 10,200 shares. Um, and the cost base is the same. The cost base stays at that $1. In episode 11, I interviewed Peter Thornhill, and he's a big advocate for listed investment companies as a long-term vehicle for people to invest their money. Two of his favorites are AFIC and Whitefield, and both of these have what's called a um, DSSP. Can you explain to us, or otherwise known as a bonus share plan, can you explain to us what is a bonus share plan or a DSSP, and what are the tax implications for this? Yeah, okay. So... We were just talking about the DRP, where they give you shares instead of the dividend. Um, One of the downsides is, from the ATO's view, what's happening is you are still receiving that dividend and you're buying those shares. So you do actually need to pay tax on that, let's say that $200 we were talking about before. The DSSP does does a very similar thing, where instead of giving you a dividend, it gives you shares, but you don't need to pay tax every year on those dividends. Instead, what it does is it reduces your cost base. 
So effectively what you're doing is you're pushing forward your tax liability into the future on when you would sell those shares, not on an annual basis when you do your tax returns. So using that exact same scenario, instead of you going from having a cost base of a dollar, your cost price reduces by that $200, which would make it 98 cents. Um, looking at that example might make it a bit easier to um, you know, digest. Yeah, there's another difference with uh, the DSSP as well, isn't it? Because in that financial year, you don't have the ability to claim the uh, franking credits. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so there's a couple of things that people need to consider before going into um, the DSSPs. Okay, well, let's now go into some listener questions. So Charlie asks, for someone in the top tax bracket, which is more tax effective, a DRP or a DSSP? And when would someone choose a lick with a DSSP over an ETF? So the difference between the DRP and the DSSP, it, it has a lot to do with your your future and what you know you, how you see your financial future. If you're in a 45% tax bracket and you are, you know, buying the shares today and selling it in three years' time, and your tax bracket isn't changing, you know, the uh, it's going to have a very similar result. If you are in a 45% tax bracket now and you're not planning to sell for 10, 15 years until you retire, whenever that is, and you will able your your tax bracket's going to go down, the DSSP will allow you to, you know, potentially pay less tax in the future because you're on a lower tax rate. Um, now, moving that question to, you know, a lick with DSSP over an ETF, um, it's a similar um, scenario. So with an ETF, where you're actually going to get those dividends, where the lick with the DSSP allows you to hold it. So again, it's the DSSP is really great if you don't need to sell those assets until you're in a lower tax bracket in the future. That makes sense. And how? And James asks, how does the dividend reinvesting strategy hold up if franking credits were removed? So you're saying how Labor was talking about getting rid of franking credits. You know what? You know does that? You know if someone's got a franking credit strategy and then they remove franking credits, what does that look like? Great question. Don't know. I think one of the biggest the problems is we don't know. A will it get passed? And B, you know, will they make some other alternate change? So you know, if the government turns around and takes away franking credits, will they replace it? With something else do they leave franking credits and only say people who are getting that um that that credit return they are no longer um you know eligible it really depends on what changes they make yeah I and mean, we don't really know until that's actually implemented if it ever does get implemented um and but you know on the dividend reinvesting this the investor is still going to accumulate increasing number of shares purely by um having the reinvestment plan rather than taking the uh, dividends as uh, cash yeah 100 yeah Good. All right. Well, thank you again for sharing your time and knowledge with us. How can listeners learn more and get in contact with you? Uh, yeah, great. So it's Connell from What If Advice. So you can check out our website, uh, whatifadvice.com.au or our YouTube channel that we're working tirelessly on, which is just YouTube backslash uh, What If Advice. Fantastic. I'll put all of those in the show notes as well as the uh, the images that you've created for us today. Thank you very much, Connell. I hope you have a good day. Thank you. If you're interested in learning how to optimize your finances, please subscribe to this podcast. Also, head over to my blog, medicalmoney.com and subscribe to stay updated. If you know a colleague who might also find this information useful, please share this with them. I'd love to get your feedback, so send questions, comments, and recommendations to me at andrew at medicalmoney.com. See you in the next episode.